following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Hey guys, Chris here, and before I talk about this week's episode of Tales from the Association, I finally get the chance to make an announcement that I've been waiting on for a while. We're planning on using Tales from the Association as a template to roll out a number of new similar podcasts, the first of which, Tales from the Show, hosted by Dan Bauer of The Leftovers, will be debuting this upcoming Tuesday, just days from now. And I promise you we've got a lot more where that comes from in the coming months. On the show this week, I had the chance to talk with former Kentucky and Villanova Wildcat Michael Bradley. Michael's just a great guy, and he's got a really interesting take on life that we get to dive into later in the show. Make sure you stick around the whole way through for this one. We get to a lot of good stuff, and you don't want to miss anything interesting. That's it for the intro. Make sure you check out Tales from the Show this Tuesday, and enjoy this week's episode of Tales from the Association, featuring Michael Bradley. Tales from the association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's not days. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they're gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to this week's episode of Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horwardell, and my guest today was two different kinds of wildcat before becoming a first-round pick, Michael Bradley. Michael, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your beginnings. Burncoat High School in Massachusetts. What is the recruiting process like for you? Uh, it started probably my junior year. I was on a really good national AAU team, BABC, out of Boston, and we played in all the major tournaments. We're winning a lot of the national championships and started getting some recognition probably towards the end of my sophomore year. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the school mailbox starting to flood with your dream schools. You're starting to see letters from Duke and Indiana and Notre Dame, and then Kentucky starts coming in later on down the line. So, um, as a blue collar kid that grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, to see that happen, and basketball was always my passion. My dad played in college. I had an older brother, two years older than myself, and he was a D1 player at Charleston Southern, got a full scholarship there. So I saw his process play out, and for mine to kind of take the extra step and be elevated to that level was, was a really cool experience for a 16, 17-year-old kid at the time. Oh, for sure. What was it that made you pick Kentucky? Um, I was down to my five schools where I took visits were Boston College, Indiana when Bobby Knight was still there, mm-hmm. uh, Kentucky, Villanova, and Miami, Florida. And the schools, they were kind of randomly spread out, and they all, yeah. they all had their pros, <laughs> you know, they're Nothing much similar. It's not like I said Duke, Kansas, Kentucky. They were they were all unique in their own way. Miami was going to offer myself and two AAU teammates that I was really close with. We all three hadn't gotcha. had scholarship offers there, so we took a visit together. Boston College was home, 45 minutes away in the Big East. Villanova was just far enough away, and I was really close with their head coach, Steve Lapis. Indiana was intriguing because they needed a guy to come in that could score the ball in the post right away, and Bobby Knight was Bobby Knight. Um, which I didn't know 
I didn't like until I took my 48-hour visit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then Kentucky's Kentucky. You show up and Coach Patino picks you up in a Mercedes and you go to a game with 24,000 people and everybody knows the recruits in town and you have an amazing weekend and you go home and you decide to go to Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, make, that makes sense. And I want to talk about Bobby Knight for a second because you hit on something that's really interesting and that is there's this perception of him for people that maybe aren't around him. But he is a, a – first of all, he's a very large man. But he is, he's a very kind man as well. You know, I had uh, – Kirk Haston was the last guest on the show, and Kirk ended uh. up playing at Indiana for Coach Knight. And I, I think what the what the national media, or at least people in general, think about Bobby Knight, while not completely wrong, is off base. I don't know. I mean, all I can speak about is Knight 48 hours. And I know Kirk, he was picked right ahead of me in the 2001 draft by a pick I ever picked yeah. a Duke. Um, so he spent a lot more time and, uh, my 48 hours. Yeah, you're right. He is a large man. He's like six, five two sixty, really <laughs> imposing, intimidating for a 17 year old kid to go out there on a visit. But my time with him, he, I give him credit now looking back at it because he didn't, he didn't hide anything and he didn't try to cover up anything. Mm-hmm. He was who he was his whole visit. He kicked balls into the crowd. He cussed guys out. He MF guys all the way up and down the whole roster threw chairs in the locker room. So that perception is exactly what I saw. Uh, okay. My dad was with me on the visit. He asked, you know, if, if you get, my dad had like four standard questions he asked everybody on our visit. If you throw Michael out of a practice, can he come and talk to you the next day and clear things up? And his, I don't know why that was one of his questions, but he was a JUCO coach. So maybe he <laughs> had a lot of experience throwing guys out of practice and thought that was going to happen to sure. his own son. <laughs> anyway, Bobby Knight says, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm not here to be your son's friend. If he wants a friend, go to the Boys and Girls Club. If he wants to play basketball for the best college <laughs> basketball coach, come play for Indiana. So, you know, everybody else, Patino and Coach Lapis and uh, Miami, they made it look like a field trip. They made their practice look fun, and that's what happens on recruiting. And I found that out 20 years later when I coached in college. But, um, you know, Bobby Knight didn't hold back. He was who he was. And for me, when I got on the plane after 48 hours, I looked at my dad and I said, there's no way I want to go here. So, Right. Uh, maybe the perception for a lot of people is false, but for me it was very real. That's true. Maybe maybe it just takes a while to warm up. I don't. Uh, that's that's really interesting <laughs> that you, the two of you, at at a very similar time had very very different experiences overall with uh, with Coach Knight. But you do Kirk, wind Kirk up. Kirk probably took a visit the next weekend since we were the same year. He probably took a visit the next weekend, and they dumbed it down a little. And he signed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think we screwed this up with Bradley. Maybe we have to calm down. I, I don't. I don't <laughs> think Bobby Knight calmed down for anybody. I don't think so. You guys would have been interesting together. Yeah, I mean, Kirk was a, a really skilled player, and like I said, he was picked one or two spots right before me in the draft. But um, my host was Neil Reed and Jason Collier, and you know, I don't even know if those guys ended up finishing their careers there. I think they had the choking incident and something else transferring out. So yeah. it just wasn't a help. You know, it wasn't a situation that was for me. A lot of guys really want to go and play for that type of disciplinarian, but it wasn't for me. Fair enough. So freshman year at Kentucky, uh, playing time's kind of scarce. You average 2.4 points and 1.7 rebounds for a very strong Kentucky team. What's that season like for you? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, filled with ups and downs. You know, you get on campus and you think you're a hot shot coming out of Massachusetts and pretty highly recruited and then you step on the floor the first summer day for pickup ball and you got Najee Muhammad, Jamal McGlure, Scott Padgett. I mean it was a it was an eye opening experience to get out there with these juniors and seniors who didn't want to lose any playing time and you know, we had just 
had a coaching change situation where Coach Patino went to the Celtics and Tubby Smith and his staff were as new as I was. So they were watching everything we did. And the first day or two, Jamal McClure and Nazi did not take it easy on me. And I remember <laughs> just calling home and being like, holy man, this is difficult. These guys are like animals. This is nothing I've ever seen before. You know, and I played against some pretty good competition in high school and AU, but it's nothing like going to the defending national champ right off the bat and having future 12, 15 year NBA guys in front of you. And you're the, mm-hmm. you know, the wide eyed freshman trying to take their playing time. So um, the first year filled with ups and downs, of course, I did get some playing time towards the end of the year and made an impact in the SEC tournament. But to win a national championship, your freshman year pretty much sets the bar way too high for anything else. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, we're actually getting together in a few weeks for a 20 year reunion. We have nine out of the 12 guys committed. So I haven't seen a few in a while and it's a brotherhood. It's something that goes down in the history books and, uh, amazing, truly amazing experience. Well, you mentioned that coach Patino left prior to the year and Tubby Smith came in. What's that like for you as you know, you'd been recruited by Patino. Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, of course, when you're being recruited as a top 200 player and um, you, know, you want to get up and down and you're a big guy that can shoot it and pass it and like the pressing system. And then all of a sudden Tubby Smith comes in and all he wanted me to do was screen, screen again. And then if possible, mm. set a screen while running down the course. <laughs> uh, it's totally different styles, totally different styles. And, and, you know, it was disappointing. I tried to actually get out of my commitment to Kentucky when coach Patina left um, my father and I again called the athletic director and the athletic director at the time, CM Newton said, you don't commit to a coach, you commit to the university. And as anybody uh-huh. with a ounce of a brain knows in college athletics, you're not committing to the university. If I really wanted challenging academics, I would have went to Villanova off the bat rather than UK. And you commit to the program and the basketball coach that's recruiting you is the honest facts. And they wouldn't let me out of my commitment. Um, which in hindsight ended up being a blessing for winning the national championship, getting to play against Nazi Scott and Jamal for two years really turned me into a pro down the road, I believe. And the four of us are super close to this day because of that bonding. You talk about an interesting point there, because there's, there's a movement in college basketball right now to let players transfer without having to sit out a year like you would a couple of years later. Are you for that or against that? I'm for it in the event that the coach leaves okay. either when you're recruited or during your four years. I believe that's fair. I believe if you sign with the school, the coach, the program, and they leave for a better job, a different level, um, I believe all the kids should have the option of transferring out until the new coach is named. I mean, I just think that's fair, especially in my case. You know, if you're an incoming recruit, those kids should be released immediately. And they can still choose that university, but I do believe that's at least very fair. I mean, to me, it makes no sense. I know the NCAA gets pounded from every side saying they're doing everything wrong, but, you know, like Calipari, for example, can go from wearing Memphis blue to UK blue overnight, get a $4 million raise, and start tweeting Go Cats and recruiting 12 hours later. (laughs) But the player has to sit out a year if that's the same situation, and it just doesn't seem like a fair deal to me. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Coach leaves, players should be able to leave. I don't like this idea of being able to transfer, you know, willy-nilly without uh, having to sit out a year, though. I think, you know, we see all these problems going on in college basketball right now in terms of recruiting. 
and I don't think we've seen anything until until this starts. This is only going to ramp up the the backdoor payments and all of that stuff by a factor of a hundred when you effectively have free agency in college basketball every single year. Yeah, that to me would be a silly rule. I mean, I 100% agree. If the coach leaves, those incoming recruits should be free to choose another school without any penalty, and possibly the 10 or 12 returning players on the team, maybe if the coach leaves. But um, to have it just be come and go as you please for no reason, I am against that. I think that opens up just chaos and, like you said, free agency and too many of the things that are going on right now. Let's talk about Tubby for a second. He just got fired by Memphis after a 21-win season. How'd you feel about that? Tubby's a great person. I got to spend some time with him two years ago when I was coaching college basketball and spent some time watching some AAU games with him and uh, cleared the air on a lot of things that were left hanging when I transferred out. And He's a great coach. He's a great person. He does everything the right way. He'll never be accused of breaking any rules. He never pays. He never cheats. And that's what the game needs. And it's sad that you fire someone after 21 wins and you know 15 or so games over 500 after two years. I mean, I'm not sure what Memphis what Memphis wants. They may bring in a name or a guy that has a couple of high school kids waiting to come, but we've seen that before, and that doesn't always work out. So it's sad that you fire these guys, like my old coach Steve Lapis and Tubby Smith, guys that do it the right way, are good people, are shaping young men, not just to be professional basketball players, but to be good dads and be good businessmen and be good people when their playing days are over. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you win 21 games at Memphis and you get fired. What kind of uh, right? <laughs> what kind? What is that proving to coaches and to the players who may want to go there? Yeah, well, and you get fired more likely than not for a guy who has never coached at any significant level before in Penny Hardaway. Yeah, no, I mean, again, there's a lot of silly things going on. They think that's going to sell tickets win more than 21 games and get them to the final four, they're, they're sadly mistaken. That's not going to happen at Memphis anymore these days. There's um, no more Tyree Kevins and those guys coming through the door there. Yeah, they're they're going to be – no, I mean, that's, it's not that level of, of club anymore. And it comes and goes, and you have cycles. And when Calipari was there, they had it rolling. And um, I think they have their expectations set a little too high. They're not a perennial top 25 team. They should be happy with 21 wins. But more importantly, a great person – and a great role model uh, for the kids. Agreed. While we're on college basketball, this was interesting. Yesterday, two of the top prospects for this year's NBA draft lost in the first round, DeAndre Ayton and uh, college basketball poster boy Trey Young. Do you think it's anything of a red flag for those guys to lose early in the tournament? No, I don't think so. I mean, they're special talents, whether you win a national championship or you play in the NIT the execs and the owners and the coaches, no talent, they'll find it and they'll draft it three months later, number one and number two. I mean, I don't think it's a red flag at all. There's a lot of really awesome players that won't even make the tournament. There's a lot of great players mm-hmm. that don't make it in four years. So um, I don't think it's a red flag at all on those guys. Yeah, well, being a 76ers fan, I can't say too much about this as a you know two of our most, I guess, three most talented players. One of them has yet to prove it didn't even make it into the tournament with uh, with Ben and Markel. Yeah, and they've seen the stockpile, some pretty good talent there, so I think they're in good shape moving forward. But I don't think it's a red flag. I mean, there's guys that aren't even really amazing college players and, you know, like a uh, 
Rajon Rondo, for example. He was a good player at Kentucky, but then he got to the league mm-hmm. and when he was with Boston, he was like a triple-double machine. So there's guys that college doesn't even really actually suit them. Now, Peyton may be a different situation. Trey Young, they're saying is Steph Curry, and that's really large shoes to fill, but those guys yeah. are surefire, can't-miss prospects. So no red flag at all that they didn't you know, advance past the first round. How much have you gotten to watch Trey Young this year? Is it, that is a very polarizing player. Not much at all. My, my wife and I and our kids have been traveling a fair amount of the last two years, actually, as we homeschool and world school our kids. And um, the countries we've been in, some have had TVs, some haven't, and uh, <laughs> spent a lot of time in Asia and Latin America. And, you know, when I can catch a game on the gym and, or, or a, new, a local pub, which I don't frequent too often, I'll catch them. But I see the highlights, and I'm on all the sports feeds and pages. So, he does look amazing. I haven't seen him play in a full game, but obviously the talent's there just from a highlight edit reel. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of guys look good in, on a highlight reel. But he's consistently putting up 30. That's a different story. <laughs> that's very that's very true. You talk about this uh, this world schooling your kids. I was interested in this when you brought this up uh, You know, when we were emailing. Talk to me about the importance of world schooling your kids. What do you mean by this? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, my wife and I were just at a point in our life. I had finished a season coaching collegiate basketball and knew that that business in that situation was not for me. We own three hot yoga studios in the Cincinnati area that are doing really well, and we're very fortunate to have managers holding down the fort when we're not there. So we decided to sell our home in northern Kentucky, decided to sell a lot of possessions, a lot of stuff that we have, and take our children who are now 9, 10, and 12 on a world school type adventure. We were homeschooling the year before, so it's not like we just all of a sudden woke up and had this wild and crazy idea, even though most people, <laughs> it still does sound like that. Um, so we decided to just go ahead and explore the world. We wanted to see different cultures. We wanted to teach them things on the go. We started in New Zealand, Australia, for a month each, and then we ended up in Southeast Asia for the next seven months. Um, And we just were really engaging in culture, in community, in cooking lessons, in schools when available. We would have the girls enroll in school for either a day or a week and just doing a lot of local homestays and just really exploring the world and living and learning on the go. And it's been an amazing experience. We've been in 19 countries over the last two years. Finally, we're in Costa Rica. The kids are in a Spanish immersion school. And it just is amazing. It is out-of-the-box thinking, for sure. But the kids have developed, grown, and matured in so many different ways that we could never even imagine. I mean, whether we're scuba diving and they're learning about coral bleaching and and climate change or whether we're doing uh, organic farming in Thailand on a working rice farm. Some of these experiences that we have, are like movie-like, and we're, we're doing these mm-hmm. monthly, and the kids are getting so much out of them that it's just an amazing experience. What's the dream? What would you like them to take away from all of this? Um, I mean, just the experiences and for them to become, quote-unquote, global citizens and just to be strong, confident, um, entrepreneurial, independent women when they grow up. They're 9, 10, and 12, the things that they've already seen, the things that you know, the unique experiences they're participating in, it's just um, very unique. And the way that they're growing and learning, 
is, is you know, it's great in our eyes. What made you uh, decide to homeschool them in the first place? Uh, we had been in a really high academic school in Cincinnati where I was coaching high school basketball, and it was a great base for them. Um, but the kids were just becoming a little stressed with the amount of work and you know there was so many after school activities and I feel like you can get in this routine um, of just doing the same thing over and over and over again you know you have to shake them at 630 to wake them up out of the bed you're trying to jam some toast and yogurt in them before you cram them in the car and then you get them to school and it's 8 to 330 and then they've got a little tutor and they have dance and they have tennis and it's 530 and you're rushing to get dinner and before you know it, it's bedtime and you haven't even spent any time with your kids. And luckily for us, you know, having our own business and having a little financial means from my playing days to do something like this, we just jumped at the chance to do it and without really asking too many questions or writing down a con list and why not to do it, we just jumped to do it. And it's been probably the best decision we've made as parents and as a husband and wife to just go ahead and, and live now rather than, you know, let's save for 65 and let's travel then. You know, we want to travel with our kids, show them the world, educate them, and just really enjoy our time now. Do you have any plan for how long you'd like to do this? We don't really have any end destination. My, um, <laughs> funny you ask that because yesterday I just had to email our accountant and our insurance guy back home for something for the business. And our insurance guy was like, when are you coming back home for good? (laughs) (laughs) And just getting an email from an insurance guy kind of makes me cringe anyway. And then for him to ask me when we're coming back to Northern Kentucky, I was like, not sure. No end date yet. Talk to you later. (laughs) You know, it's like, we don't know. It may be another six months. It may be another six years, or there may be no end date. I mean, we're really enjoying it. And uh, as long as we can physically and financially do it, I don't, I don't see, you know, any end date in sight. Very cool. Well, it's it's certainly a unique experience, and uh, it's an it's an interesting one. It's not something that you typically see people do, and there's something to be said about that. And there's something to be said about wanting to give your children these experiences and let them grow as people and grow as a family uh, while you're doing all of it. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. I mean, we just really want to cherish our family time and sounds like an old man saying that, you know, I can remember, actually you remember the name, Eric Montraff is my good friend and he was my savvy veteran when I was drafted in Toronto and when I was a rookie in Toronto, his kids were, I think maybe three and one and now they're both at UNC and he tells me all the time, like, it goes so fast, enjoy it, enjoy it. And you always hear dad say that and now that my kids are 12, 10 and nine, you know, we we theoretically have five or six more years before they are off on their own. So to be able to enjoy life with them and have all these memories and experiences, you know, it's, there's no price tag on that, and it's been amazing for us as a family. So I appreciate your words. Oh yeah, very. It's very cool. But let's get back to you. Um, from after that second year at Kentucky, you do decide to transfer, and you head to my beloved villain of a Wildcats and head coach Steve Lapis. What made you make the decision to uh, to leave Kentucky for Villanova? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, having Tubby come in, and I learned a lot from him, and it was great. And even my sophomore year, I was I think I was starting pretty much the whole season. Um, we're up to 10-5 and five a game in the SEC in 20-something minutes, which was pretty good, but I just wasn't really being used correctly in the system, nor was I having fun. And I know it may sound silly, like, you know, you're on a Sweet 16 team, you're starting, and, 
it just was a difficult situation because we had Jamal McGuire another season. He and I were going to be in like a timeshare role again. And honestly, I was just getting a couple layups here and there and a couple tip-ins, and that was how I was getting my 10 points. And I knew if I had right. any chance to become a professional or to really better myself, I needed to be more involved in the offensive end of the game because that was my strength. So admittedly, I'm not a DeAndre Ayton defensive presence. Like, that's not what you're getting with me. You can give me the ball mm-hmm. and I'll give you 20 points and six of this, but I'm not going to be a defensive monster out there. And that's just what I was feeling. I wasn't feeling like I was being used correctly. So it was really, really tough decision. Those were my brothers for two years and um, really comfortable with the city of Lexington. And to transfer was a, a really difficult decision, but I thought it was best for my long-term interest. So it wasn't an easy conversation to have with Coach Smith and then obviously with uh, my teammates. But selfishly, I thought it was the right decision, and I'm glad that I did it because when I went to Villanova, I had a great relationship with Coach Lapis. He knew what my goals were right off the bat. To sit out here, I worked endlessly to improve my conditioning, my body, my strength, my skills. And we had um, another guy that played 10, 12 years in the NBA, Malik Allen. We had a lot of mm-hmm. battles and practices and great individual workouts, so it was a it was a great opportunity for me to get there and compete against him for 12 months. And then when the season rolled around that next year, when I was done sitting out, um, I was just as focused and as sharp as I've ever been. So credit to their staff, Joe Jones, who's still coaching at Boston university, um, Steve Pannone, Steve Lapis. There was a lot of great coaches up there and I was very fortunate that they accepted me as a transfer. Yeah, and it all worked out for you. 20.8 points and almost 10 rebounds and two blocks a night uh, that junior year at Villanova. What factors led into you deciding to enter the draft? Another tough decision. I mean, life's full of them, right? But I was getting them early and often, it seemed. Um, Again, without sounding too selfish, it is a business. And you have to strike when the iron's hot. And 20 and 10 in the true Big East when it was Georgetown, Syracuse, you know, the Big East we all remember. Um, You know, I didn't think personally I could do much more to improve. And that was never really even the goal. I mean, I wanted to be a pro, but after five or six games that year, I was averaging 20 and 10. And I remember broadcasters, Andy Katz and Dane O'Neill and a couple others were starting to talk about NBA path and, these couple sites had you predicted here and there and it was never a thought until they put it in my ear um but i didn't really focus on that i just kept playing 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 and doing my thing and then at the end of the year i sat down with my parents i sat down with coach lapis and we all agreed to go ahead and enter the draft because there wasn't a whole lot left to prove and it was my fourth year of school so i only needed a couple credits to graduate which i ended up taking a few summers later when i was with the 76ers um, but the decision there wasn't as difficult as the transfer decision. It was pretty obvious at that time what I needed to do. Okay, so college is over. What are you doing in preparation for the draft? Literally working out most every waking hour of the day. I mean, you'd wake up, (laughs) get some breakfast, go lift some weights. The strength coach and I there, Jeff Watson and Mark Spellman, were super close, and we uh, worked out two times a day, once with cardio, once with weights. Um... You know, Coach Lapis and his staff were great. And then, unfortunately, after my junior year of playing, he was let go. And that's when Jay Wright was hired. 
maybe a week or two later, and Jay and his staff continued to let me work out in the gym, gave me individual workouts for the next two or three months. Um, and that was pretty much it. I mean, it was a routine for two, three months of just working out, getting in shape, hiring an agent, going through all that process, and then trying to line up NBA draft workouts, which I was fortunate I had a really good agent that got me 13 or 14 looks. In the very limited time you had with him, what did you take away from Jay Wright? What were your thoughts on him? Oh, Jay was great. He was really impressive. He was really organized. He ran a heck of a workout. He ran a heck of a team, individual drills, and collectively. Um, just had a really calm but energetic presence about him. And I could say it, I knew right then he was going to be a stud, but um, <laughs> knew very little of him. I just knew that he came from Hofstra. He had a couple of really good players and a couple of really good years coming in. And he was he was unknown to a lot of us. And uh, I just remember how, how organized and how efficient he was in his hour or 75 minutes that they allotted to work with us each week and how genuine he was. He was a really kind guy. He cared about all the players, whether they were graduating, whether they were freshmen coming in. And to this day, we're pretty close. I mean, we exchange messages every so often. He always takes care of my wife and I when we're in. Cincinnati for a Vader game or if we want to go to a game up in Chile like very generous very responsive to a guy that never played for him so I have nothing but respect for Jay and the job he's done is tremendous he's, he's just done an amazing amazing job there yeah I can't believe we still have him and I'm incredibly uh, incredibly grateful that we do I'm shocked too but I think it speaks to you know the character of, of he and his wife and how they value the program, the tradition, and the area. I mean, he's, I'm sure, been tempted by other schools and possibly NBA teams, but I think he realizes how good he has it, um, how great the Villanova tradition is, and, and that he's very fortunate to have that job. Mm. So we get to draft night 2001. You are the number 17 pick by the Toronto Raptors. What's going through your mind when you hear that you've been selected into the NBA? Uh, it was actually a very nerve wracking 24 to 48 hours. I was invited to New York city for the draft. They try to invite the top, you know, 15, 20 people into the green room. And I got up there and I was just by myself for a day. I think my family was going to fly in the next day, the morning of the draft. And I just didn't really feel, um, comfortable up there. It wasn't my style, you know, a lot of glitz and gamma and cameras and, a lot of activity. So I, I actually flew home. I went to the people who were running the draft and told them I didn't feel comfortable there and just wanted to be at home in a casual space and event with my family. And um, so they did that and it was great. I got to be at home with my mom, my dad, my brother, my girlfriend at the time who turned into my now 17 year wife. Um, <laughs> who else was there? Coach Lapis was there with his wife. So it was an amazing time. It was just small function at my house and I was much more comfortable and, and just happy to be there in a relaxed environment. So my agent was constantly on the phone with me throughout the night. We knew that we was going to be in the 13 to 20 range. And, um, you know, I got a call right before number 17 hit and it was him saying Toronto was going to take you. We hung up the phone and watched David Stern do the announcement. And it's just like a lifelong dream come true. You know, we've been watching that for 15, 20 years. And then you finally, I don't even think Stern got Bradley out of his mouth once he said the 17th pick from Villanova, Michael, the house erupted, and that was all I remember. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So, uh, 
college, so college is over. You are a professional basketball player now. What's it like the first time you walk into that Raptors facility and you're you're a professional, you're now a teammate of guys like Del Curry, Vince Carter, and Hakeem Olajuwon, who honestly mm. I forgot spent a year in Toronto. <laughs> you're not the only one. I think most people either forget or want to forget that happened too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. You know, you get right on the phone with their GM. He hands you over to Lenny Wilkins, and then they put you on with the coordinator in the office, and we had eight first-class tickets out of Boston going to Toronto the next morning. You know, you're doing the meet the press, you're holding up the jersey, you're taking all the photo ops, and that's when it hits you that, wow, you're, all of your hard work and all of your dreams that you've had of holding this jersey up and doing these interviews as the number one pick of a team, they all just came true. And it's, it's very surreal because it happened so fast and you don't really have time to look back on it until, you know, a day like today when you're going through it because life just happens and then you don't have time to just sit down and um, think about what you actually did because for me that was what I expected to happen. I, I put so much time and effort into my craft and into perfecting it that that's what I thought was going to happen. So, um, you know, a lot of people helped me get there, my family, my coaches, and when you hold that jersey up and you're in the Air Canada Centre doing the press meetings, it's just a day where everything truly comes true. What did you get from Olajuwon that year? What do you learn from one of the legendary players in basketball history? <laughs> Dream was a funny guy. He was really quiet. He was to himself. Um, kind of had the Allen Iverson practice syndrome where he couldn't practice much. <laughs> but his was because he was very old and aging quickly. Yeah. So he, he got up and down the court a few times each day and then would just want to work on his dream shake after, which was mostly my job to go out there as the rookie to just kind of try to block it. I think it was more for his humor than anything. Um, <laughs> He was great. I mean, he he taught me some of the things. He did teach me to shake a little bit, which I never got to use too much in the game, but I do have a nice dream shake now from the master himself. Um, but more probably just some of his life wisdom. I mean, we'd, we'd have a couple dinners together where he took myself and the other rookie out. And, um, you know, he was just very genuine and sharing some of his knowledge. I remember Carlos Arroyo and I, if you ever remember that name, he was the other rookie sure. we had. And we both tried to take out our credit cards or $30, $40 at the Cheesecake Factory one night. And Hakeem in his soft voice said, young fella, I have it. It's only paper. And I just thought it was actually pretty cool. I mean, granted, his stack of paper was a lot higher than most people's. But yeah, uh, being a Muslim, being a like, fully committed Muslim man, he did have a lot of wisdom and it always came out in such a calm voice that if you just look at it like you know how much stress is put on the average american because we're always trying to make more money and pay more bills and and buy the next materialistic thing and for him to say it's only paper i've used that many times with my wife my parents my kids and just trying to you know relay the, the fact that it is only paper and you can get worked up about making more of it or how much do you have or how much should you spend? You know, like those type of things. And if you, if you take that mind frame, it can work for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So dream was great. He was a really quiet guy, really reserved. Um, but that's always a funny story. I like to share about him. 
there's a lot of talk about maybe Olajuwon was a little bit older than he was listed. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I would bet he was. <laughs> if he said he was 37 or 38 when I met him, I don't think that was right. It was kind of like buying a used car. You never know quite exactly how old it is, but he was probably 44, 45 when he was in Toronto. Was my guess. Okay, so seven, eight years older. That just makes yeah. his NBA career all that more impressive. <laughs> and that's not a negative on him. I mean, we got along very well, and he would laugh at it too. We were... You know, we had guys like Del Curry, Chris Childs. They were relentless on him. They were, they said he was 50 years old. You know, so 44. You know, probably be happy I said that. <laughs> so that rookie year, you know, 4.5 minutes a night, 1.2 points. Is is that tough on you? Really not being able to crack into the lineup at all? Yeah, rookie year was really tough. It was again, um, you know, it felt like freshman year at Kentucky. You get drafted. Mm-hmm. You think you're a hot shot. And they drafted you because Antonio Davis was a free agent. Terrell Williams was a free agent. Um, I forget. Somebody else was a free agent, another big guy. And then they signed Hakeem just for insurance policy. So I went from being, like, slated as the second big man on draft night uh, already to, like, fifth or sixth in line because Mm -hmm. they just signed all these vets for huge contracts. So I show up. And again, it was kind of like that first day at Kentucky when, you know, three future pros were there, Padgett, McGuire, and Nadia. I show up and Eric Montross is there. He's bigger in person than you ever imagined. Uh, team's there and he's humongous. Antonio Davis, like, chiseled out of marble. Keon Clark, seven foot string beam lefty. Jerome Williams. And then, you know, here I am already sitting in like sixth place on the depth chart and ready to work my way up the line. But then you figure out how the business of the NBA works. And guys that are getting paid fourteen, twelve, eight, six million dollars a year are going to get the first crack. So it was a difficult year, um, but it was awesome again because I got to learn a lot from those quality big, big men and just learn the ropes a little bit. Anyway, you always need time to just figure out what's even going on when you have eighty-two games and a travel schedule and you're a professional. So it was difficult, but I tried to make the most of it. And the second year also kind of mirrored your second year at Kentucky. You get. You get to play about 20 minutes a game. You get 11 starts, five points, six rebounds. You're putting up numbers. You're improving. How are you feeling after that second season? I feel great. My rookie year, at the end of the year, Lenny Wilkins and I had a great talk. I told him that I really wanted to contribute more. How can I get on the floor? And I remember Lenny, who I loved. Lenny was so calm, such a player's coach, so honest, so respectful. Probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. He looked at me and he said, Michael, if you rebound the ball, I won't be able to take you off the court. And mm-hmm. so we shook on it. We made a deal. I said, you know, you don't have to tell me ever again. I'm going to get every rebound when I get in the game. And he just wanted to see me be more aggressive. He thought my rookie year I didn't want to play enough or I wasn't aggressive enough. And we had an amazing talk. And I went home and I was fired up all summer, worked on my conditioning, worked on the weight room, and came back and uh, I did what I was told to do. You know, every time I checked in, I was just trying to be a – a madman out there and out hustle guys and out think guys and really use the analytics of where the ball was coming off on corner shots and on straightaway shots. You know, 71% of the time it comes off long from a corner to the other corner. So running to the other side and just using anything that I had to my advantage to stay on the court, because I knew the name of this game is after year three to re-sign for a couple more years. So uh, yeah, production went up. My enjoyment went up, obviously playing 18, 20 minutes a night and being one of the guys right off the bench. 
is much more fun than having a suit on like I did my first. Yeah. Well, un- unfortunately, things don't necessarily go to plan that third season. You end up getting waived by the Raptors. How tough is it getting waived that first time? Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, again, in the training camp of my third year, where I was expected to play a lot and actually compete for a starting position, I had torn my meniscus in my knee probably in the last gotcha. preseason game. So I was out for two or three months. And then in the NBA, that's kind of just a, uh, a no-no. You know, you get behind in the rotation. The team's doing pretty well when you get back. And now you're back to, like, sixth on the depth chart, rather, where you were second or third in the big man rotation. So, again, all things happen for a reason. Uh just happened to be an injury. My first real injury happened at the really wrong time in my career. But mm-hmm. – um, Overcame it, came back toward the end of the year in Toronto. It was actually a mutual agreement. Glenn Grunwald, who was the GM, who he and I have a great relationship, actually called me in and said that it wasn't looking like I was going to get in the rotation anymore that year. And we talked about a possible wave. And he actually brought it up because he said there may be some other teams who could give you a 10-day or two and get you seen so you can prove that you're healthy and sign another deal. So it was, it was really unique in the NBA circle that a GM would look out for you. Now, granted, they went and find somebody else who could help them, but I believe he was truly doing it to help me out. So mm. that's actually what happened. They released me. We, you know, gave hugs, parted ways. It was really difficult. The team that drafted you almost three years later, that third year I played there just about the whole year. And then it worked out well. I signed a 10-day with Atlanta Hawks. Um, they were in a really bad situation. They were having an awful year signed a second 10-day, and then they signed me to the rest of the year. Wasn't playing a ton there, but the last game of the season, Coach Terry Stotts gave me a start. I think I had 10 points and a couple rebounds in just a few minutes. And then uh, that was a little springboard to the summer where I signed a two-year deal that following summer. You did. You signed a free agent contract with the Magic. What what led you to the Orlando? Uh, I was working out down at IMG with Joe, who does an amazing job. Well, now he's out at Impact in Vegas, but back then that's where he started. And I was just really putting in the time and really working on my my legs and my strength to show everybody that I was back. And Johnny Davis and the GM at the time kept coming over to IMG. And after they saw me play a few days, they offered me a two-year deal. And honestly, it was the first offer I had, and I was not going (laughs) to be picky and wait around. And Orlando sounded really good after three years in Toronto. Sure. <laughs> so if you're wondering what goes through a free agent's mind, it's that. Do you have any offers? Okay, then take the first one. And if you do have multiple <laughs> offers, which city would you rather live in? <laughs> right. But for me, it worked path. out that I got a call. Yeah, I got a call around midnight from my agent, and I knew something was good because he hadn't called me in a few days. He said, Orlando wants to offer you a two-year deal. And I need you to... I forget it back then, get to a fax machine as soon as you can. Something's coming off hot. And that was it. I mean, they had seen me work out two or three times. Felt like I could be a good piece for them. And coming off an injured knee, it was, you know, in NBA terms, kind of like a bargain price for them. But it was a great deal for both of us. Yeah, and uh, if you didn't already know, you would very quickly learn just how much of a business the NBA is. Uh, Midway through that season, you and Catino get traded to Sacramento for Doug Christie. What's it like being traded for the first time? <laughs> it was another funny story. I was out with a teammate. We were watching 
uh, Villanova game, I believe, and I got a call from my agent, and he didn't check in a whole lot. I wasn't a high-maintenance guy that needed to be mm. pep talk or talked up or I didn't need anything. You know, I needed you to give me a deal and then just leave me alone. I'm fine. I don't need this. Sure my agent to stroke me or anything like that. So when he calls, I know something's up one way or the other. And he said, um, you know, you've been traded. They've announced it already. They're really excited to get you. So you don't really have much time to think about it. Like I said before, things happen so quickly in this league and this business. I think you have 48 hours to report and then they start docking pay from your contract. So I just said, well, when do we go? And when's the next game, I guess. I, I, I'll just, <laughs> I don't know. I'll call my wife. We just bought a house in Orlando. I don't know what, what we'll do there. Um, but you just start really the next morning, they fly you out and you do meet the press again. And it's like, it just starts all over again. And you don't really have a choice. And thankfully with AU and with how much basketball guys play, you always know three or four guys on each team. And the longer you're in the NBA, you know more. So at that point, it wasn't that big of a deal. You realize your next check is still coming every two weeks. You realize that nothing really else has changed except your location. So, you just kind of take it and go with it. When you get to Sacramento, do you get the impression that this might not be a long-term thing? Because, you know, as we know, it wasn't. Yeah, no, I knew at this point, and my agent and I, Mark Bartlestein, we had a great relationship, and all I asked was that he was always honest. And the amount of money I was making, I was always pretty much like a throw-in to make a deal match financially right. has to be within a certain percent of the contracts to match in order to do it. And in a way it was great because, you know, the other team can say who they want in that price range. So they were choosing me, but I was never the guy they were trading for. So, um, you know, you never knew how long it was going to be, but as a role player and as a journeyman in the NBA, you don't really care. As long as the check's coming and you have a chance to get sure. in the game, you just show up and you play. Michael, you're selling yourself short. Are you saying that in this next trade to the 76ers, you weren't the key piece? <laughs> I mean, I tell myself that I was the guy they were trading for. But the newspapers and the reporters say it was, you know, Katino Mobley and Chris Weber. And I, I just, I don't find that true. Right. So you get traded from Sacramento <laughs> to Philadelphia, along with uh, Barnes and, and Chris Weber for Brian Skinner, Kenny Thomas, and Corliss Williamson. Now you've been traded twice in a very short span, you know, not just on you, but how tough is this on your family? Yeah. So that year was the toughest. I mean, obviously we, we landed in Orlando on a two year deal. We bought a home there. I was sent to Sacramento. Um, my wife stayed back in Orlando to try to figure out what we were going to do with the house, list it, pack it up. Um, I think I was in sack like six or eight weeks and that yeah. never felt right. I mean, I was just in like a, one step above a motel renting something just because you know, our home in Orlando had just been, we'd just been swept under our feet. So um, that, that just never felt right. The rotation there was firmly set. I did play a little bit out there, but it just didn't feel right at all. So actually getting the call from my agent and Billy King saying that they traded for me to come back to Philly, I was actually really excited because we love the Philly area. We went to Villanova. And to go back there and have the chance to play now with Alan Iverson and Chris Weber was really, really exciting for me. So that call was so much better than saying you're going out to Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> so you do spend the remainder of that season and the next season in Philadelphia. Overall, how was your time with the 76ers? It was great. 
I mean, of course, everybody wants to play more and, and do better. But, you know, to be back in Philly, which was a very familiar city to my wife and I, and we were living downtown, and to be able to have the experience to play on a team with Allen Iverson, with Chris Weber, Andre Iguodala, Kyle Korver, Kevin Ollie. I mean, there was a lot of quality people there who I enjoyed. Um, you know, and, and to be in Philly for a year and a half was a really good experience for us. What was your experience with Alan like? He was great. The first few days, I don't even think he knew that I was on the team or who was this guy in the <laughs> practice facility, to be very honest with you. I, don't, I think he walked by me a few times before we even realized we were now teammates. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but he was great. He was the funniest guy. I was on five teams in five years. He was the funniest guy that I had ever played with and met. He could impersonate anybody, um, could draw anybody, could just carry on a conversation with a room full of people with himself. And it was still hilarious. I mean, on the plane, he was the center of attention and it wasn't like he was trying to be, but whether he was singing, dancing, playing cards, um, just getting everybody involved. And after a week or so, you know, we started, you know, interacting a lot more and I enjoyed my time with him a lot. I think he, going back to our original talk about perception of Bobby Knight, I think his perception is off a bit. I mean, he comes yeah. off as this really tough street guy that you know, does a lot of things the wrong way. And while that may be true, and for sure some of it is, he's a very generous guy. He's a very loving guy. He's a very caring teammate. Um, an example of that is we were in our Orlando home that summer, my wife and I, and we got a UPS delivery and we opened it up and then it was an invite to Alan's 30th birthday party where he was inviting okay. every teammate to come to his 30th birthday party and buying them two flights for them and their spouse to come up. And we had only been teammates for half a season. And like I said, interacted very little. Um, and that's how generous he was. He wanted his team to be together. He wanted all of us to be there for his birthday party. And that itself was one of the most unique nights we've ever had. I told my wife, I don't care what we have scheduled on this night. Clear it because we are going to Alan Iverson's birthday party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not even a question. He's like, no, on the invite it says, you know, park at Villanova Law School and you will be transported to the house. And we get there, and obviously with Bradley being near the top of the pecking order alphabetically, as I'm signing in and showing the lady where my name is, because, again, no one knows I'm on his team or mm-hmm. I play in the NBA, <laughs> I see all the people with only one name above Bradley, like Tyrese and Bow Wow and, <laughs> I mean, this is, what, 2005, so it's a pretty cool memory. The hip-hop violinist was there. She was playing music. The Tyson fight sure. was on. I mean, there was a Maybach wrapped in a ribbon on the front yard. Like, we got there, and we were at the cream of the crop Alan Iverson birthday party, which was an amazing, amazing night. But he was such a cool, cool dude and very generous. I mean, I have nothing but really funny, humorous stories of him in my mind. No, I I agree with you completely. You know, Alan is not without his flaws for sure, but you know, none of us are. And I lived very close to Alan when I, you know, when he was in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, and ran into him a lot just around, be it you know Best Buy or just on the street. And I there's one story I always remember, and I, I thought it kind of kind of wraps up who Alan was to other people because I was very very young. I had just gotten my driver's license. And we're 
where I'm driving by the Fellowship House in Country Hawken, and Alan Iverson, I see, is the car coming across from me. We're we're gonna cross paths here once he runs through the stop sign, and I am, you know, I'm a 16 year old. I am honking my horn. I'm waving at him excitedly, <laughs> and this is what this is what he gets constantly. And he takes the time to stop, say hello. And, you know, it wasn't a long interaction, but it was a very nice interaction. And I I never saw anyone really say anything bad about Alan. Hmm. Yeah, you won't put me on that list. He was awesome to me, year and a half together. We haven't talked in a while since, since the end of that season. I don't think we've communicated at all, but if we saw each other, I'm sure there'd be a lot of love and, and good memories shared. Well, if you ever get back to the States, you could go ahead and play for Alan's team in the big three, Michael. <laughs> Maybe that's where I should end up. <laughs> From Costa Rica to playing in the big three. That's basically the path all of these guys are on. <laughs> That'd be great. So, all right, following a time with the 76ers, you go overseas. Oh, I'm going to butcher some stuff here, so bear with me. You're playing for San Sebastian Giposka? Giposka? Uh, you're playing yeah, Spain. I still can't say it. Yeah. How did that come about? I played about? there for nine months, and I still can't say that word. It was San Sebastian, you're right. It's the northern coast of Spain. It was actually a beautiful like beach resort town where most of the Spanish go to vacation. So we were living a seven- or eight-minute walk away from like the most beautiful beach in Spain. Um, upon arrival, it was very difficult. I mean, truly, it was like, even though Spain is the best basketball league outside of the NBA, it was still like getting a demotion from Major League Baseball to directly to double-A, skip triple-A. Sure. Um, you know, the, the arena we were playing in was a bullfighting arena. The red clay was still around the outside <laughs> of the court. It could only seat 6,000 people. It was freezing in the winter. Like, there was no heat. There was halfway doors on the oh on the outside of the arena. So, um the surrounding amenities were not even like the weight room was a bad high school weight room, but you know, that's all how you look at it. I was getting paid a hefty amount to become the number one guy in Spain and yeah. go up against guys like Marc Gasol, Luis Scola, Rubio, Navarro. All those guys were in the Spanish league when I went over there. So the competition was great. You can only have two Americans per team. They count on you to become one of their major players. And that year was really fun. I played nine months in the ACB I think I averaged like 13 and eight there. And my whole goal was to play well enough to have a chance to go to an NBA summer league team or to get a contract off of that. And at the end of that year, I had enjoyed playing there so much that I just wanted to keep playing because I knew I was getting older and my body was wearing down. And I didn't want to just take a one year veteran. I had an invite to go to the training camp with the Phoenix Suns, but after weighing it out, you could make a lot more money. Um, in Europe rather than taking a veteran's minimum at that point for myself. So I had a couple nice offers after playing that year in Spain and decided to sign with the top team in Germany in Alba, Berlin. And then my wife and I packed up our stuff and went to Berlin. So are you making a conscious decision at this point that you want to see different places or are you really looking for a team to settle down with? No, so the European leagues are different. Most contracts are only really one year. I mean, it's truly like week to week there. If you play poorly for two or three weeks, they will cut you and send you home and bring in the next American because there's so many guys uh, willing to play there and at home out of a basketball job. So it's 
it's a lot different. You play mostly one game a week, and if your team is expected to win and you're the American import player and you're playing poorly, you will be cut very quickly. Um, so that year in Spain was really fun. I had two or three offers after, and I think one was in Kiev, Ukraine, and one was in Berlin, Germany. The Spanish team didn't want to increase their offer, and the other teams were. So, again, just like the NBA, like I told you before, the criteria is pretty much money and city. And after looking at those two things, um, you know, Berlin was the the spot for my next stop, which – which was great, but it didn't last long, and that was the business of the European market. You know, I, I got there, and my knees were starting to act up again. And I probably needed to have another surgery, but I was just trying to push through it so I could finish that year up and then do it in the summer. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I wasn't able to rebound and get off the floor like I used to. So when my averages in Berlin were only like six or eight points a game and three or four rebounds, they called me in. And just like I was talking about, we lost two or three games in a row and I was their highest-priced player, they said, we're going to let you go, and we're bringing in somebody else tomorrow. So they already had that done. And your money's not guaranteed. You try to work out a deal where you get an extra month or so. Um, but that's the business side of European leagues. You you either play well or you're gone. So <laughs> you mentioned money and destination. You didn't find playing in Kiev overly appealing? I didn't. And I think it was on the outskirts <laughs> when I looked it up and it said like minus six most of the year. Oh. We were not down for that. So we chose Berlin in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. From uh, from Germany, you go to BC Zalgaris. And how did you enjoy your time in Lithuania? I would not recommend it as a travel destination or speak <laughs> highly of it on TripAdvisor. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was just... Man, it was just dark and sad and like a depressing place. I mean, it was only broken off from the old Soviet Union like 15, 18 years ago. So there's really no, um, you know, not a lot of structure there. It gets, yeah. not not exaggerating, it gets dark like at 3.15 in the afternoon. You do not see the sun. It's freezing cold. It's like the movies. You see people outside in their really big winter jackets, you know, sharing up a vodka bottle, like just to stay warm and just to entertain themselves outside of the one strip mall there was there. So um, Darius Sangalia recommended that to me. So if you ever talk to him, don't believe anything he says. I called him up because he's from Lithuania. I said, could I take this job there with this team? He's like, yeah, man, it's a great team. It's EuroLeague, which was true, and that was great. He's like, it's a great city. There's this new mall there, and it's really you know coming alive. And I got there, and it's true. There was one mall, and that was the only thing to do. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> you don't have to go to Zalgiris, Lithuania ever in your life. Good to know. And I always enjoy the connective fiber from one person to the other, so I will, I will keep a note of this and mention it to Darius should he ever end up on the show. Um, <laughs> All right, do that. Uh, so from there, it's finally to CB Granada. This is going to be your last stop. At this point, were you ready to move on and just sort of go into that next phase of your life, or was this, uh, you know, unfortunately a limited opportunities kind of deal? Yeah, no, I think I was, and I could feel it coming. I mean, I was, my body was just breaking down. Like in Europe, at all these stops, you practice twice a day, you play once a week. So there's just so much going on with your body, especially if you've had mm-hmm. two knee surgeries like I did in the NBA. 
But, you know, they're always looking for a big guy and they're always looking for NBA experience. And every once in a while, I would have a flashback and give them 15 and 10 in a night, and that's why they wanted to keep calling me to these other teams. And Granada just needed a big man for a month. I forget who it was. I think it was Curtis Portrait or something had had an injury, and they needed a replacement guy. So I went there for the last month. And at one point during our two-a-days, the second practice, I can totally remember sitting in this, again, junior high school-type locker room, tying up my shoelaces and just thinking to myself, I really don't want to do this. And then it was the next day and I said, man, I really don't want to practice. Like I was tying up my shoes to go to practice. I had now at this point was using like elastic stretchy bands to warm up my knees and to get my Mm -hmm. tendonitis away and putting on the muscle rub and trying to hide it and wear sweats and wear high socks and greasing down everywhere I could, but not trying to let the team see because I didn't want them to cut me and, it just got to a point where it was a lot of work to maintain yourself to practice each day. So I finished there and actually had like one or two lower level offers the next year. And that's where, you know, I had to make a decision as we had our third child that summer. So now we had three kids under the age of three and a half. Would I take another low level European job or just, you know, call it a wrap after seven years and, uh, take care of my body and get into something else. Well, seven years of professional basketball is a whole heck of a lot more than pretty much anybody else in this planet can ask for. So you did very well in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And I think I got the most out of my body, my miles, my talent. Um, obviously I would have liked to have a couple more years like my second one in Toronto, but in hindsight, I was blessed. I got to live out a dream travel around the world, see a lot of places, meet a ton of people. And, uh, you know, seven years, I don't take that for granted. It was, it was quite an accomplishment. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. So a couple of years off before we see you pop up again, and all of a sudden you're at Summit Country Day School coaching. Is this always something you wanted to do? Yeah, I just love the game. And I realized that I love coaching at that age level. I mean, I was doing mm-hmm. some camps and clinics every year and, my daughters had just enrolled in that school, and one day Greg Dennis, the athletic director, who's a Philly guy, he called me and said, I'd like to talk to you about our basketball program. And at that point, I wasn't really interested. I went and had a conversation with him, and he wanted me to coach the team, and I went home and told my wife. I said, you know, this guy offered me a basketball job there. Um, I looked into it. It was a very high academic school. They hadn't had much success in the last few years, and I wasn't sure that I wanted it. So I said, let me think about it. Let's meet up again in a few days. And actually met with him again and called him the next day and said, you know, no thanks, it's not for me. And then for the next 12 or 18 hours, that was nagging at me. Like every two minutes I was saying, I should have done it. That's what I love to do. I should have taken it. Mm-hmm. But I, like you hear these college coaches change their mind. I called him and I'm like, Greg, did you offer that job to anybody? I want to do it. And so he didn't. I took the job and, um, started coaching high school basketball for the first time. Yeah, you're there for, what, three years, and then you end up being the associate head coach at Eastern Kentucky, but that only last year. I think I think we touched on this a little bit earlier. Maybe that just wasn't, uh, wasn't the scene for you. It wasn't. I mean, I really loved the high school level, 15 to 18, getting to mold those kids into young men, teach them how to do the right things on and off the court. That's a big part of coaching and leadership to me. My wife and I, we own our own business. It's also part of our business being 
engaged, interactive, positive leaders is what I truly believe. And I think you can get a lot out of that, especially playing for a lot of different types of coaches with a lot of different personalities in my career. I feel like if you inspire the kids and you make it fun and you engage with them and you truly care for them, you're going to get so much more production out of them. And that's what I did at, at the high school program. We took a club that was, you know, under 500 for many years. Uh, and we won the state title my second year coaching there. And we did nice. have some talent, but it, it was an under 500 team, you know, when I took over. And it was just so much fun. And actually, our point guard was the starting point guard for Penn yesterday versus Kansas. Uh, is that Tony? Yeah. So we had a we had a great run there. And as I was doing really well there, I always wanted to try at a higher level, college, pro, and um my friend got the head coaching job at Eastern Kentucky and asked me to go with him and be his associate head coach. And since I didn't have to uproot the family, it was only an hour or so from our house in Northern Kentucky, I decided to give that a shot. But um, like we said earlier, college coaching is a whole nother business, and that was not for me. I mean, it's 25, 7, 365 yeah. days a year. And when you're coaching at that level and you're away from your own kids, that was again that, you know, not in the stomach type of feeling where I was away from my family and I was actually coaching a program I wasn't really inspired about. So I knew pretty much off the bat that that wasn't going to be for me, but I did um, go ahead and complete a full season. And then after the season, we parted ways on that. Well, you just alluded to this. Uh, since then, you've started a company called Namaste and Play. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it's really one of my wife and I's, you know, pillars of the family to give back. And as we travel, we've created this nonprofit called Namaste and Play. My wife's been a yoga instructor for 15 years, and we have the three studios in Cincinnati called Moto Yoga Cincinnati. Um, so yoga is her passion. She's a gifted, skilled instructor. Basketball is obviously my passion. And as we travel for the last two years, we've gone into children's homes, we've gone into villages, we've gone into public private schools in Mexico, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, and we've probably done maybe two dozen events where we go in and we lead a 30-minute yoga class and then we do a 60-minute basketball clinic and we always try to leave them with supplies, whether it be jump ropes, yoga mats, basketballs. NBA Cares has partnered with us and they've donated some basketballs. Uh, Jade Yoga Mats is another partner. So we try to leave a few supplies at each location and we try to encourage the teachers at the schools to go ahead and continue um, providing these opportunities for the kids because they really enjoy it. And in soccer's football is number one and two over here. So for them to get a new basketball and to understand how to play the game is really fun for us to share that in these developing nations as we travel. And for our kids who do like basketball to be able to show them the skills and to be engaged with these kids is another way they're learning on the go. Well, that's awesome. So for anybody who's interested in that, you can find more information at namasteandplay.org. Uh, I don't have the information on the yoga studios. Where can people find info on the yoga studios, Michael? Yeah, so Moto Yoga Cincinnati is the name. That's also the website. They can just Google that or find it. But um, we've had those for 10, 7, and 5 years, respectively, three studios in the Cincinnati area. Very nice. All right, so we're getting to the end here. I want to wrap up the same way I do with everyone. A quick game of word association. I'm going to give you the name of some people that you've come across during your career, and I just want the first thing that comes to your mind. 
Lee was so funny. I mean, most of the stuff he did, I can't share with you, but Lee was really funny. I enjoyed playing with him. Yeah, Lee was uh, Lee was a great guest. I look forward to having him back on in the future. And future uh, guest on the show, Wesley Person on that team. Oh, man. You're bringing up some names I totally forgot about. <laughs> Wesley Person had a smooth stroke, but we didn't interact a whole lot. He didn't want to pass the ball. Everybody on that Hawks team was trying to get their numbers at the end of the year. So it was a very dysfunctional group. Everybody was just going for their own <laughs> and going their own way after the game also. It was one of the most dysfunctional teams I've ever seen in my life. There's a weird correlation to that in that that's, this is sort of the team that I have managed to mine the most for guests on the show. And uh, it was just apparently a group of individuals looking out for themselves. So It was such I don't a know disaster. The... We're just happy you want to interview us. <laughs> Uh, Bob Sora. Don't know how much you uh, you were around, Bob. No, Bobby Sora is another guy on that team. He was, uh, I mean, he was a hell of a talent. But Bobby was out there trying to get his numbers, just like everybody else, to get the next contract. But didn't have a whole lot of interaction with those guys. I uh, I can't imagine that one Rashid Wallace was just looking out for himself. <laughs> Rashid Wallace. I don't know about that guy. I don't have a whole lot of respect for him. He was one of the few guys that was such a talker on the court and went overboard with his with his words that I don't have a whole lot of uh, respect for how that guy acted or played, to tell you the truth. All right, fair enough. Well, let's go from one end of the spectrum to the other. In your time in Orlando, you played with a gentleman by the name of Grant Hill. Yeah, Grant was amazing. He is a gentleman, an amazing talent. I got to see him the other year at the Final Four when he was doing the game and catch up with him, but super talented and just a really nice guy. How about one Steve Francis? Steve Francis was amazing. He was probably the second funniest guy behind Iverson. Every day in Orlando was a comedy show with him. He not only was he so talented, but just had that ability to bring everybody together and to be the comedian in the room without even trying. Um, I think we had so much fun with him and Katino that they had to separate them, and that's why we got shipped out. <laughs> How about a rookie by the name of Dwight Howard? Uh, Dwight was Dwight was impressive the minute he walked through that door. I mean, he was 18 years old, and even though he may have been carrying a Bible, he looked like he had shoulder pads on and mm-hmm. 260 pounds. I said, that can't be the guy that we just drafted. I might as well give him my jersey, give him my seat, give him everything right now. <laughs> he was uh, a great another... kid, though. He came in as an, as an 18-year-old, really humble, quiet kid from Atlanta, so it was interesting to see him enter the NBA with, with Steve Catino, Calvin Cato, um, with those kind of characters on the team. I think that might have been another reason to get some of those guys away from Dwight. That certainly makes sense. Uh, we have another great past guest on the show. Bobby Jackson played on that team. Yeah, Bobby was out in sacks with me for a little bit. Um, amazing talent off the bench, and you know, I didn't interact with him a whole lot. had my crew that I kind of went out with socially there, but Bobby was a super talented scorer and a big-time energy guy. Let's end up in Philadelphia. How about one Chris Weber? Yeah, C. Webb was awesome. That was um, one of my closest friends on the team. We sat together on the airplane rides, and I think we both helped each other out a bit because Chris was kind of bummed. He was out of Sacramento, and Philly mm-hmm. wasn't the kindest of cities for someone who was aging on one leg that they expected a lot out of. But Chris was so talented, so educated. His, his parents were 
educators and instructors in Michigan and um, have a lot of respect for Chris. And I think he does a great job on TV. When I, when I talk to people, the three names that come up as the greatest teammates of all time, you've played with two of them in Chris Weber and Grant Hill. And the other guy would be uh, mm-hmm. Shaquille. Huh. I'm not shocked. I mean, Grant and Chris, I mean, you can only fool people for so long until your true colors come out, right? And everything you see right. on TV from Grant and Chris is exactly how they were. They were competitive. They were nasty on the court. But they're very educated. They're smart. They're well-spoken. And they care about other people. And, uh, you know, that goes a long way, especially when you're a rookie or you're not playing a whole lot for Grant to invite you over to the card table on the Magic plane or for Chris to ask you to sit next to him on that plane. I mean, those are just normal dudes who happen to be extremely talented and world-known, but Grant and Chris Weber were two of the best. I agree with that. How about one, Allen Iverson? AI is amazing. So funny, so talented, never lifted a weight in his life, only ate (laughs) plain hamburgers, (laughs) had a few Coronas, had a few late nights, and mark him down for 36 and 3 every night before the game started. Maybe yeah, the most a... physically talented player I've ever seen. Just a little man, too. Just a very a small man. <laughs> tiny, tiny little guy, but one of the biggest hearts you'll ever find. So I think that compensated for his physical stature. Oh, yeah. He did fine for himself. How about Andre Iguodala? Iggy was, I think, another rookie or maybe second-year guy when I was in Philly, so he was a little quiet back then but an amazing athlete and could tell he was going to be a heck of a player for many years so it's cool to see that he's still on a great team winning and and having a lot of fun well much like Nalon, i don't think this next guy was quiet one sam (laughs) d'alembert where is sam (laughs) what is he doing now sam was so funny so loud and so wild on the court no one wanted to go anywhere near him because you never knew if you're going to get an elbow a poke in the eye a kick Sam was a wild man out there, but he was so funny if you could understand what he was saying because he was speaking so fast. <laughs> uh, and the last guy I have on the list, you know, when you were you were in Orlando, you had a, a rookie by the name of Dwight Howard. In Philadelphia, you had a rookie on the opposite end of the personality spectrum, Lou Williams. Sweet Lou was so young, 17 or 18-year-old. We messed with him a lot, but he um, he was just such a good guy. I mean, he came in knowing very little about basketball or life. He was 17 or 18, and, again, he was lucky to have Chris, maybe not so lucky to have Alan around him, but (laughs) we all took him under our wing. It was just so funny to have a a young kid like that in the locker room and on the bus, and uh, we had a lot of fun with Lou, and he was not in the rotation, but we could tell he was going to be a problem to be dealt with years down the road, and his career has panned out like that. He's a super talented player and um, always had a big, bright smile that would light up a room. So it's good to see him still doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. What is it like for a team when you have basically a child in your locker room? He was a child. I mean, on the rare occasion <laughs> that we'd have a beer on the bus or the plane, you know, it was so funny to have an 18-year-old sitting there that technically you had to, like, watch over. Um, <laughs> just a young kid. Yeah, just an eighteen year old kid in your locker room. It was it was a little different and physically he was so thin and frail that he was years away from being ready, but um 
you know, that's where you just become a sponge and he's, he's able to soak up what Andre's doing after practice and Kyle Corver's getting in extra shots and Iverson. And he was in a pretty good situation to learn from some of the best guards in the league. Should high school kids be allowed to come into the draft right away? Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, if you put them in college for one year, I don't know what good that's going to do. I like the football rule. If you're going to go, go for three. But, you know, who's to tell somebody what to do? If you can turn pro tennis or golf at 15 or 16 or go fight in a war at 18, why can't you try to enter the NBA draft at 18? I'm all for it, but I'm a lot more open-minded than a lot of people. Fair enough. All right, well, that is all I have for you. Is there anything uh, anything else? We've talked about your businesses, but is there anything else you want to promote, anything else you want to say before we get out of here? No, I think that's good, man. I enjoyed the conversation, and uh, appreciate you having me on. All right, well, this has been this week's episode of Tales from the Association. My guest has been Michael Bradley. Michael, it's been great having you, and uh, try to enjoy the rest of the day in Costa Rica. I will. Cora vida. <laughs>